Welcome to Spotlight, the Oxford Media Society podcast. My name is Hao Chen and today's guest is Michael Bristol, the current Asia-Pacific editor for the BBC World Service in London. Prior to his current role, Michael worked as the BBC's Beijing correspondent for five years across all media platforms, covering the main BBC programmes for both domestic and international audiences. Beyond traditional news reporting, Michael has also written a wonderful book, China in Drag, Travels with a Crossdresser, where she talks about his experience in travelling with his language teacher, an elderly Chinese man who enjoys crossdressing. So, Michael, thank you very much for joining me today. You're very welcome. Um, I thought for this conversation we kind of dissected into three or so categories, the first of which being reporting on China as, as a broad theme and a broad topic, and then going into more particularly your book, The uh, Travels with a Crossdresser, and finally, the career that is being a journalist on the broad topic that is reporting on China. So firstly, um, you, you, you've worked for a very long time in the Chinese reporting industry as a foreign reporter there, both being based in Beijing and now being based in the UK reporting from abroad. I was wondering if you could go into a bit more detail about perhaps the differences and similarities between the two. Okay, well, the two jobs are very, very different. When you're a foreign correspondent based in a particular place, your your main role is to go out and gather information, to gather news. So you're travelling around. When I was in Beijing, for example, I travelled around quite a lot. You're speaking to people. You're basically gathering news firsthand. You're speaking to people, finding out information if that's possible, uh, and more frontline reporting. The role that I do at the moment is more uh, an editor's kind of role. Essentially what I do is I sit in London and monitor a whole host of news coming into the BBC that's from our correspondents out in Beijing, that might be from uh, the language services uh, which cover East Asia because I cover not just China but East Asia as well. Um, It might be websites based in particular countries, so for example Kyodo in Japan or Yonhap in South Korea or Xinhua in in China. And uh, so I monitor all kinds of different sources. I have my own contacts as well. And then I decide essentially what news the BBC World Service Radio ought to be reporting about China and East Asia on any particular day. So the role I have in at the moment is more of a, a stand back role. It's copy editing, copy tasting, looking at dozens of stories and kind of choosing three or four each day in which we ought to report. So that's kind of two quite different roles. Right, yeah, and totally. And so just following on that, you said, you know, there is a lot of information coming in every day from a variety of sources. As the editor, as someone in charge of choosing what information we choose to report on, choose to present to the local audience, what kind of benchmarks or criteria do you follow? Yeah, no, it's a good question, and I often think of that myself. And it changes quite a lot. So, for example, I was working yesterday, which was a Sunday. Sundays are traditionally quite quiet days, but of course the news still has to be reported. We still have news bulletins every hour, so we've got to fill it with stories. So some stories which on other days, busier days, might not make it, um, would perhaps make it on a quieter day. So, for example, yesterday I did a story about uh, snow in China, which was disrupting travel uh, as people travel home and to see friends and relatives for uh, the Lunar New Year holiday. So that on another day might not quite have made it, 
uh, he did yesterday because it was a quiet day. It's not an uninteresting story. So that's the first criteria I, I say. I also use other criteria. My job, broadly speaking, the way I define it at the moment, is to try and give listeners across the world an overview of what it's like, of what life is like, both in China and, as I say, across East Asia, um, which I report on, not just China, other countries as well. So I don't want to do the same kind of stories every day. I want to mix it up, do different kinds of stories, give give a different flavour of what's happening in life there. Not just bad news stories, but good news stories. Sometimes just cultural stories, sometimes economic stories, sometimes politics. As I said yesterday, it was about transport and people travelling home for a holiday. So you also bear that in mind when you're making story selections. Of course, some stories you just can't avoid. Say there's a big natural disaster or a big political event. And of course, you report those stories. But I think my job um, is more important in the quieter days when you're trying to choose stories which not only give you the news, but a flavour of the places that you're reporting. Because remember that for the World Service audience particularly, you're trying to report on places that they might not even have been to, probably haven't been to, they might know very little about. So each story has not only to be a news story, but to tell you something a little bit about the place which... Um, it's happening in. Yeah, definitely. Um, and with looking forward with the new year that is the Olympics, I was wondering across your time in reporting on Asia, whether that's Beijing in 2008 probably, or sort of the Korean Peninsula 2018 for the Winter Olympics, is there a particular sort of trend in stories that come up during years very near to these big sporting, big cultural events? Um, well, big sporting events, as you rightly pointed out there, was uh, in Beijing for the 2008 Summer Olympics. Sporting events which capture a global audience generally tend to become news events and allow people to witness a country and to window into a country, really. At one particular time, focuses on a country and uh, we become interested across the world in that country, not just for the sports, but about other things about the country. And that's certainly the case. It certainly was the case for the 2008 um, Beijing Summer Olympics because it was the first time Beijing had held an Olympic Games. It was billed as a a kind of a a coming out party for China. So here's a country which had been through a couple of decades of opening up and reform, but still a country which people knew very little about. So it gave everyone an opportunity to do stories which essentially said, look, this is what China's all about. This is this is China, not just in a sporting context, so in a news context as well. So all sporting events have that kind of appeal as well. There are often news events around them and also it allows the rest of the world to to see in a little bit more detail what's going on in other parts of the country. Yeah, yeah. And you mentioned you know, China and indeed to, to, to an extent Asia as a whole, East Asia, it's going through this period of sort of familiarizing with the broader world, people kind of getting to know the broad and diverse culture that is, that is there. I was wondering what your perspective and anything you've, you've found particularly interesting over the past decade or more of how these societies have evolved. I mean, China, for example, has has definitely industrialized, modernized even more than before. 
you know, they've gone through massive changes, especially during the COVID era, with some some deeply troubling news as well. Um, any particular thoughts on that? Well, that's a really big question. There's <laughs> lots of things happening. But if I had to narrow it down to one or two, and I'm thinking just off the top of my head, I would say the first thing, money. Asia, East Asia is far richer than it was even just a generation ago. Um, it's, you know, becoming a main driver of the world economy. It already is um, a main driver of the world economy. But people from Malaysia, Indonesia, China, South Korea, you know, they're, they're rich beyond people's imaginings, as I said, just a generation ago. So that's brought immense change to lots and lots of countries. So I think that would be um, a, a main theme uh, to look at and going forward, that's only going to continue. Um, thinking about it, what else? I think there's uh, East Asia is a really fascinating uh, region in itself because there are lots of really different um, trends and, and developments. So you have countries um, or places, I'll not call Taiwan a country, Taiwan and South Korea, for example, where there's great uh, liberalization, great opening up, great democratization. These places are as progressive as anywhere in the world at the moment, really pushing forward society, women's rights, minority rights, uh, working out how to deal with democracy, democracy how to best uh, advance democracy. So these places are really on the edge of uh, of what's going on in the world in, in, in those terms. But also, you have a lot of unreconstructed places like China, which are essentially governed uh, very similar to how they were when Mao Zedong uh, led the Communist Party to power in 1949. You know, the, the power structure is essentially the same. And, and also, you have uh, a kind of a retrenchment of democracy in some countries as well. I'm thinking... Myanmar particularly, um, Thailand, Cambodia, uh, those kind of countries where, so you've got a lot of kind of interesting themes and, and kind of all pulling apart, pulling against each other. And I suppose, finally, I think it, you'd have to say that China's rise would, would be the biggest thing, the biggest change to East Asia. Rightly or wrongly, China is trying to reshape um the world, at least in its own backyard, at least in its own region. Uh, and I'm making no comment on whether that's a good thing or a bad thing or whether they have a right to do that or not a right to do that, but they're certainly changing um, diplomacy, economics, uh, politics, uh, inter-country relations. So that's really my biggest story. It's kind of China and, and how that's reshaping its region. Yeah, fantastic. That's great. I mean, and that's that's perfectly leading on to China and her character. Something that you think you mentioned in your book and mentioned in subsequent interviews, kind of something that is reflected by the stories and the anecdotes in in your in your book, Travels with a Crossdresser. So I think the first question I have for that is it's a very kind of niche topic, something that even as a Chinese myself, I didn't really think was something that many people would have would have addressed and certainly something that still isn't a very broadly talked about conversation. And I was wondering, if was that something that you were, that kind of angle, something you were particularly looking for, or was that just an incidental find that proved to be 
very much a gem. It, it was the latter. It was an incidental find. I was writing my teacher's life and had decided to do that before I found out he was a cross-dresser. That just added to the story. Essentially, the book, though, what I tried to do with it, it's not about cross-dressing or it's not essentially or mainly about cross-dressing. It's about China. There were lots of books about Chinese politics, elite politics. There were lots of books about economics. A lot of them are kind of quite dry and quite technical. Um, I wanted to write something which uh, I hoped would reflect the character more of people in China. The smaller stories, the people who don't usually get uh, into stories. I might have done lots of reporting in China, but never really reported them other than statistics or um, anecdotes to fit within a story, but only as kind of bit part players. I wanted them to take centre stage, essentially, and wanted to kind of reveal something about the character of China, because, of course, as a reporter, I do lots of stories about politics and a lot of bad news stories about politics where we criticise China's human rights record or lack of democracy or that kind of thing. I wanted to write a book which uh, rebalanced that a little bit by giving a fuller picture. It's not that it isn't undemocratic or it doesn't have an authoritarian government, but that just people get on with their lives despite that and live ordinary lives very much similar to the way that people do in the rest of the world. So that's my intention um, in writing the book and hopefully I carried it off. Yeah, um, I think a particularly interesting point you mentioned was how normally your teacher was received and there was no sense of ridicule coming their way or sort of disgust or, or whatever. That, and um, I was wondering what you thought about the kind of sense of Chinese conservatism. I mean, in, in my personal experience, I think a lot of the Chinese populace is still deeply conservative, especially some of the older generations. They stick to some of their values, they stick to kind of the Confucian, broader, broad Confucian framework of thinking. And that probably affects much of how they perceive the world. And I was wondering, uh, you know, what was the, the drive behind how warmly they receive a, a crossdresser? Another big question, and <laughs> it's difficult to answer. Um, and it's, I'm kind of slightly hesitant about kind of describing a whole nation in broad brushes. Um, yeah. Uh, so it's, it's difficult. It's difficult for me as well. It's perhaps interesting, important to say just here, you know, I'm a guy who grew up in Britain. Um, I'm a white guy who knew very little about China before I started to get interested in it. So I'm trying to kind of understand and learn things myself and trying to interpret things I see. So I might make mistakes along the way. But generally what I would say is, yes, there is a lot of conservatism in China. There are in many countries which take an economic path from, you know, uh, underdeveloped to develop. But I, what I would say about China um, is that there is a great openness. I don't think the last 40 years of reform and opening to the outside world could have happened in a place where there wasn't a willingness to try to understand the outside world and, and kind of learn from people. And now I'm not using this as the, this is not the main bit of my, what I'm trying to say, the openness to the outside world, but just a, an openness in general to think, okay, somebody else might have another way of doing things that I need to listen to. And I think there is something about the Chinese character, if I can use that broad term, 
about that, that's that they're open to other ideas. And so um, that leads to a certain kind of tolerance. Uh, uh, and so I don't want to push the idea too far, but it, it, it kind of meant that someone who's a cross-dresser wasn't really criticised in a way that they might be in the West, which has also, a, say, the Christian tradition of a very kind of strict moral code and some people, not so many now, but even a generation ago, um, would have reacted badly towards someone being gay or a cross-dresser. Um, but I feel in China, there isn't that kind of moral st structure which was rigid, too rigid to accept um, a, a cross-dresser. And finally, it's just a, a bit of a more zoned-in question. I know you didn't mention explicitly the name of your teacher in an attempt to protect their, their identity. Just on that sense of kind of reporting on personal issues and particular persons, what steps do you take as a journalist, especially in China, where there are kind of gray areas around, around potentially security? What steps do you take to ensure your subjects, you know, personal welfare and, and, and security? Well, I mean, everything. I mean, I, I kind of, of course, as a journalist, you want to give somebody a name, uh, explain who they are, why they're explaining what they're explaining, because that gives your reporting more authenticity. People listen or see uh, or can read exactly who it is who's making a comment. But of course, in China, the reality is that people um, can get into serious trouble for saying things uh, which are sensitive um, about the government, and I'm, I'm doing something at the moment about Tibet now. Uh, just to give you one anecdote, I spoke to a, um, a Chinese academic who lives abroad, but um, obviously has strong ties in China. He didn't want to speak about this issue on Tibet, even though he's well-placed to speak about it. So lots of people, uh, illustration is just to give you an example of how um, careful people are uh, about revealing their identity. And so in that situation, I do all I can to protect them. Um, and if they don't want to speak at all, and obviously I respect that, but people might want to speak and have um, be anonymous, and I respect that as well. So I basically listen to what the interviewee wants. Yeah, and just on that, do you think there's a reluctance or kind of a, a sense of anxiety and fear among Chinese and indeed broadly among Asian, the, the Asian population to speak to foreign press? Perhaps, yeah. Particularly in China, there's been a, a relentless campaign by the Chinese government to undermine foreign journalists, to suggest that we're somehow prejudiced and biased against China, that we are anti-China, um, and, and that we only seek to report the, the bad things about China. I mean, that's just not the case. It's just not true. I mean, just... The other day I did a story about China, just to give you an example, um, a building last year more solar power capacity than America has in its entirety. So just last year, China built more than America has in, in total. I reported that story. That's not a bad news story. That's a good news story. Um, but of course, that just gets ignored. So China has successfully persuaded its own population that we're out to misrepresent them. And so that's made uh, our job uh, a lot more difficult. 
particularly since I left. I left in 2012, and since then, it's got far worse. Uh, and that just makes it difficult for us to, to kind of report a story because people suspect that we haven't got genuine motives. Most of us are. Most or many people who report on China uh, love China, have spent a long time trying to learn the language. They've lived in China. You know, we don't wish China bad. We want to kind of tell the China story to the rest of the world. But unfortunately, we face a government that's tried to persuade its population otherwise. Yeah, fantastic. And I think that's a great segue into being a journalist. And as you mentioned, you know, getting into China, reporting on China perhaps is a was a bit of a sort of strange step in early in your career. And I read that you were initially interested in going to Japan and learning Japanese and, and so on. I was wondering what inspired you to firstly turn to Asia, whether that's Japan or anywhere else, and then finally to turn and focus your attention on China and become a China journalist. Well, I suppose initially when I went to university, I wanted to do politics, but I wanted to learn something of a culture that I knew nothing about. So that's why I turned to East Asia initially. Uh, you're right, I did initially think about uh, going to Japan, but then I chose Chinese, um, I chose China. And like anything in life, once we become interested in something, we learn a bit more about it, we become more interested in, and it's like a, a spiral, we just can't stop wanted to learn more about it and let's face it a subject as big and as complex as China and I'm, I'm not going to and my lifetime is not going to be enough to, to kind of understand even a fraction of what goes on there and so um, so that's how I got interested uh, in, in the first place and I haven't regretted that decision. Great yeah um, and I just wanted to ask you've written up a book and of course you've worked extensively in traditional news writing which is a bit more kind of com compact a bit quicker in the sense of shorter lengths and more effective communication. What was the difference? And if, if either, do you prefer one style of communication over the other in terms of as, as a journalist? Um, I mean, all styles of media have, all, all ways of presenting information across different platforms have a validity. And now more than ever, that's changing. So we have people looking at news on TikTok, or YouTube or other social media sites where traditional forms of, of journalism and packaging journalism it is, or, or, to some respects, are on the wane. Um, I, I actually feel that every every platform has its validity and has its, we as a journalist, essentially I'm trying to just tell stories about China, the best stories I can about China, how that's packaged, um, I don't really care in a way. I just want to get that message across to as many people as possible. So, you know, some people, for example, like the BBC now, packages it uh, in, in different ways, the news, in order to meet the requirements of different audiences. And, and my job is just to kind of provide them with good stories in order to turn it, it, it into different ways of uh, presenting that across different platforms. If I had to choose something, it would be radio. I love radio. Um, because it's so much more creative. Um, TV, you need pictures. Without the pictures, you can't do the story. Radio, you can. Uh, and radio, rather than print, you're able to take people to a place uh, by sound um, in a really unique and wonderful way. And longer form radio, I mentioned I'm just doing something on 
it's a bit at the moment a half hour documentary you know you have time to explore ideas and themes and really really get underneath a story so I personally like radio but I you know everybody likes to access their news in different ways and and, and I respect that as well great yeah that's wonderful um, and I know that the BBC has been making very strong strides in kind of diversifying into all platforms of media. Um, and I think a question from me is, in terms of reporting on China, and there's a you know, great sense of censorship and there's a sense of not being able to use particular platforms as openly as you'd like in, in China. Um, what steps are taken to, just to kind of ensure the best efficiency in terms of producing that kind of multimedia content? Well, um, the BBC has a Chinese service, uh, for example, and they've uh, shifted a generation ago. They were all on radio, short with radio, so people within China would be able to access news that way. They're now, I think I'm right in saying, they're now completely online because, of course, people go online to access their news now. So that's text, video, uh, pictures. Um, so they just provide the news in a way that people in East Asia uh, access their news. We can't do anything about the fact that the Chinese government blocks that BBC Chinese website within China. All is we can do is we can provide the news and hope that somehow the people who want to read it can get it, uh, either through a, a VPN or uh, even perhaps when they travel abroad, they might be able to access their news or or in some other way. Um, that's uh, that's down to the Chinese government. And, and really, our part is just mostly, mostly, not completely, but our part mostly is just to provide the news to make sure it's there for people um, if and when they can access it. Great. Thank you. And just one more from me, which is... Uh, a point of personal interest as well. What points of advice or reflections now looking back at your career do you have for people who potentially are interested, students or you know those just starting off who are interested in joining the BBC or joining journalism and reporting on China? Yeah, I mean, it's tough because journalism is going through an enormous changes because of the internet. It's really reshape the industry so the financial rewards aren't quite as great or nearly as great as they were before so that's a disappointment because that might put off a lot of really talented people going into journalism there is still uh, there are still organizations which are dedicated to foreign news um, such as the BBC um, so it still is worth pursuing a career it's just worth bearing in mind that it's difficult more difficult now what I would say it, to anyone who is interested in foreign news, uh, and people do come to me and say, how do I get involved? I would say, firstly, go to the place where you want to start reporting on, because there are so many more opportunities. If I'd have sat in um, London and tried to persuade somebody to send me to China or make me a China correspondent, um, I don't think I would ever have succeeded because there were so many more people in front of me who were better, but what... I did with my wife and her, my young son in 2005, we went to study Chinese in China, uh, tried to learn the language, learned to a, a level which allowed us to get a job. And then people in Beijing were looking for people who were already there. And that's how I got my first grade within the BBC. So it was 
being um, in the right place in the right time, but also putting myself in the right place at the right time. So what I would suggest to people, um, you know, for example, if you're British and you want to become a foreign correspondent, you've got a particular interest in any part of the world, go to that world, part of the world, learn the language, uh, try to do some reporting, make contacts, and that's usually the best way to get in. You usually get some work doing a little bit of things, and then from that, you get a reputation, uh, you've got a little bit of a background, a hinterland, that then can stand you in good stead when more uh, well-paid jobs come up. Great, fantastic. Thank you very much. And that's, that's all from me. Um, if there's any final remarks that you wish to make, please feel free to go ahead. Um, but otherwise, thank you very much for coming on. No, thanks very much, Hao Chen, for inviting me. I suppose if there was a final remark, it would be that it's really important to understand China and East Asia if you're in Europe and America or anywhere outside that region. And so I kind of would recommend people continue to, to search out the news uh, from East Asia. Thank you for listening to Spotlight. To learn more about Oxford Media Society, visit our website, oxfordmediasociety.com or follow us on socials at Oxford Media Sock.